Triple F Podcast, where we're focused on fashion, fitness, and of course food. This podcast is all about bringing these three parts of your life together to help you get the most out of your passions. We're here to help you look your best, feel great, and also indulge in some maybe not so hidden temptations. <laughs> we are by no means experts in any of these fields, but we do hope to bring people to the show who know what they're talking about and can help you with some of these aspects of your life. You only live once, so why not live a life worth living? On the show today, we have Matthew Schreiner of Park Cacao Chocolat. Our true intent is all of your delight. Quote from A Midsummer's Night Dream. Inspired by British fashion and art, Park Cacao Chocolat was founded by former London-based chocolatier Matthew Schreiner in 2016 as a new style of artisanal chocolate marker. Handcrafted in Chicago, Bocacao Chocolat specializes in chocolate tablets, drinking chocolates, and a bespoke chocolate program for any occasion. They are now offering private chocolate classes as well. All their chocolate is certified non-GMO using 100% single-origin Criollo cacao from Northwest Peru and organic milk and pure organic sugarcane from Ecuador. All their ingredients are sustainably sourced. They are committed to a sustainable world through sourcing, society, and environment. So sit back, relax, enjoy this conversation with Matthew Schreiner. So today we're sitting down with uh, Matthew Schreiner, Bark Cacao Chocolate. How are you doing today, Matthew? Good. Awesome. So uh, tell us what you do in one to two sentences. <laughs> <laughs> so I am uh, the owner and chocolatier for Bark Cacao Chocolat uh, here in Chicago. And we do um, primarily chocolate tablets and specialty chocolate um, chocolate products. Awesome. So how did you get into this? Did you just kind of grow up one day? Like, I love eating chocolate, so I'm going to chocolate <laughs> for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, I, that's funny because I actually, my mom used to cook, make a lot of cookies and brownies and do things mm-hmm. for the holidays. And, yeah. And um, I always tell people, you know, I was probably five years old and I wanted to be a pastry chef. Really? That's pretty good. Yeah, crazy. so, you know, pastry is my background. And then kind of chocolate is my specialty. Okay. Um, but yeah, I was, I was, yeah, probably about five years old. And so everyone else wants to be a fireman or like the next, like uh, Michael Jordan. <laughs> you're like, I want to go home and cook all day. Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, I did different things along the way, but got into, got into pastry at a fairly late age. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was racing bicycles and doing all that and kind of getting that out of the way yeah. to see where I would go with that. <laughs> but, um, and then at, I think I was about 30 years old and mm-hmm. decided to move to France. Nice. Yeah. Into uh, Paris or Lyon yeah. or Marseille? Okay, so I went to, I went to Ferrandi in Paris. Okay. Did a eight month pastry program there, which included chocolate. How did you get into that? Because I feel a lot of people like celebrate on like social media or whatnot. I got into XYZ Culinary School. How did you? How was the process of getting into that program? They just let anyone in, or yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> they let me in. <laughs> um, my, uh, I was, I was actually, I was working in a restaurant that my friend and I opened for a few guys in Milwaukee. Okay. Which one? Uh, Twisted Fork. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm from Milwaukee, so nice. And back in, that was 2003, I think. Okay. We opened it. And I just got to a point. I wasn't doing 
strictly pastry. I was more on the cuisine side, mm -hmm. savory side, and um, kind of burned out from long hours before we opened. And yeah. I needed a break, and I, I, I was my plan was to go to Thailand. Okay. Two weeks on the beach mm -hmm. in Phuket, and um, just right. kind of decompress. <laughs> And then my my father asked me one day, he's like, "So how's your how's the how how's the trip planning going?" Mm. I said, "Well, you know, I have I have uh, I bought some uh, language DVDs, mm -hmm. and that's about as far as I got." And he said, "Well, you know, why don't we go somewhere that we know?" Yeah. And he suggested Paris. So this yeah, so we did a um, eleven day food tour of Paris. Wow. And one of the hotels that we stayed at was right around the corner from Ferrandi. Mm -hmm. Unknown, you know, not knowing at the time. Yeah. Got back home. I was looking through the through, you know, had the photos printed, and I was looking through them, and um, um, there was a photo of me in front of the school. That's crazy. Because <laughs> <laughs> we were walking around the neighborhood, yeah. and I, you know, I said, "Oh, that's a that's a cookery school." Mm -hmm. And so my father took the photo, and then I, you know, looked at it, and I said, "That's where I'm going." So six months later, I was on a plane, plane to France. <laughs> <laughs> what part of time and, was that? And was able to get a, a U.S. U.S. Um, student loan. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah, so that enabled me to at least pay the pay the, the fees. <laughs> mm -hmm. What part of town is that? Is that north or south of the sun? It's uh, it's. So Ferrandi is in the sixth, okay. which is on the left left bank. Okay. And uh, I lived I lived right, a, kind of, right across the street in the seventh. Okay. So it was you know it was like a five minute walk to work or yeah. to school. <laughs> well, I was in I so I went there for like part of a summer when I was in college. So I was saying like by by the busty, and I have some friends who are there right now because I have a house there. Yeah. Keep wanting to go back and just never make the time. Yeah. I should sooner or later. You have to make the time. <laughs> I haven't been there in a few years, but it's, uh, when I lived in London, mm -hmm. you know, you take the train over and spend yeah. a couple of days and it was, you know, there was, it was, there was always inspiration there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like whether, whether going to, you know, into the pastry shops and seeing the different things that they're doing, and, right. you know, and that's kind of how I wanted to, you know, boutique shops. So that's kind of how I wanted Bar Cacao to become mm -hmm. was you know the boutique luxury modern i mean for me like when i go to like grocery stores and i go up to like the counter for the stuff i get sick of seeing all the same stuff over yeah. and over again yeah at every store i'm like i get it trying to do a good job but just so corporate-y yeah i use that word for it it's just so I definitely see where the passion comes from yeah i mean that, and that's all that's the cool thing about france and paris in particular mm -hmm. it's because of all the fashion and you have these boutique shops, like, you know, independent little pastry shops, mm -hmm. you know, like Pierre May or even like Fauchon and, um, they do things seasonally. Mm -hmm. They never have the same thing. It's always, I, you know, it's one thing that I learned. It's like, you know, it's in pastry, I want it to be an evolution. Mm -hmm. So something that I did 10 years ago, right. and there's one, there's one dessert that I've done over the years for. I think 13 years. I, I haven't made it in a while. Yeah. But it's it's continued to evolve. Mm -hmm. And I don't if you're familiar with like Massimo Bottura. No, what's that about? At uh, uh, Francescana in 
outside of Milan. Okay. And that's what he believes in, too. He mm-hmm. always goes back to his the old recipes. Yeah. But updating it and changing it, and it's like always, you know... It's like what I... Like, at, at, I went to UWM and mm. did history, so it's, you know... And it didn't finish, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that was kind of... Like, in history, you learn you passed his prologue. Mm-hmm. So it's always looking at things that you do in the past, whether it's a Perry Brest or an Eclair or whatever, but right. changing it. Mm-hmm. And that's how I like to work with my chocolate as well. It's always, always trying to be doing something a little bit different but familiar. And it's always challenging yourself. How does that work for someone that uh, has like your chocolate once in a while? Like, let's say someone buys some of your chocolate and then they come back into Chicago from New York like a year from now. Oh, I really want this piece. Or do you think their taste buds are going to sense the difference or just kind of remember the parts that were the same and then you use me a little bit different for them? You mean it's like if you eat something in a different place? Uh, if you came back like, a year later, like you made something, then oh. you evolved, right? Yeah. And so oh, you're, okay, the, actual, right, the two right. pieces, you're from different, different. Do you think someone, it's like, oh, I love that one piece you had. Yeah. Like, do you think they'll taste the difference or do they'll just remember what they liked about it? I think I well I always hope that it's an improvement. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And that people you know people if if you have a restaurant and, and a lot of places have kind of like a signature thing. Okay. Yeah. It, hope for me it would not always be the same. Maybe you put, add an element or take an element out mm-hmm. or change something. Like this dessert that I did was a it's a cappuccino panna cotta. Okay. And one of the ways that I changed it was making. A dehydrated milk foam mm-hmm. wow. so it added an element of texture yeah and look <laughs> I can imagine that, you yeah. know and it, and it's just it's something playful and that's what I like about my my style is mm-hmm. being playful and okay but recognizable right and the, and and something may surprise you so it's kind of like this is better than remembered is what you're really yeah. going for okay yeah nice and always kind of I always like the the, that element, especially in pastry, because it's it's so tied to um, memory. Mm-hmm. Food is memory, you know. Oh, it's what you ate when you were a kid and how you remember things and where you were. Mm-hmm. And I like having that playfulness of, you know, bringing back that food memory to someone else who's right. eating it mm-hmm. for the first time. Right. And they go, "Oh my God, this reminds me of like being on the seaside," or yeah. you know. Um, Whatever it is, that's that, that it's. That's what I like to do. I had a big time for uh, for Blue Moon ice cream. I grew up only yeah. having it at the Milwaukee County Zoo. I didn't know <laughs> I didn't get it anywhere else until I was like twenty, and I saw it in the grocery store. I'm like, this exists outside like at the zoo, which is like a stupid thing to think. <laughs> but just like I grew up from that. Now, but whenever I have it, I, I always tell whoever I'm with, like, I ate this like every time I went to the zoo. Like, so I, I totally relate to that big time. Yeah, yeah. So like, walk us through what happened then post graduating from culinary school in France and Paris. So then, you're there. You previously were opening a restaurant in Milwaukee. What was your next step after graduation? Yeah. So well, I went from Milwaukee to Paris, and mm-hmm. then um, while I was in school, we we did, I guess like internship, externship, okay, work experience, whatever you want. Uh, so I was. I was placed at the Ritz Hotel. Okay. And um, I spent five months doing my externship with them, and then three months 
basically until my mm-hmm. student visa ran out. Right. So I stayed on with them in in addition, and that is really where I got into really kind of fine tuning and chocolate and learning that. And I had uh, one of my mentors was um, his name was Jean Claude. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And he was, you know, he had been a pastry chef for, that year he was retiring, he was 57. Okay. And he had been working as a pastry chef for over 40 years. Nice. And uh, so he, you know, he taught me, I would do all these mixes with him, like for Mm -hmm. eclairs and macaron and all that stuff, working in the oven with him. Right. But then he would take me down to the chocolate lab and show me kind of basic things. Mm -hmm. Um and then the head, the head pastry chef there, when I, when I first started the externship, he, he asked me, he said, you know, what do you want to get out of this? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I really want to learn more about chocolate. Right. Because that's my, you know, chocolate is really a specialty of, it's really a separate profession from pastry. Okay. <clears throat> but obviously pastry chefs, we use chocolate all the time. Yeah. And, and whatever. So he said, well, you know, we have, we have a chocolate lab downstairs. Mm-hmm. You finish what you do your assignments for the day, and then you can go down. And I told him I wanted to learn how to do uh, show pieces. Okay, cool. So he said, you come up with an idea, do the drawings, whatever. Mm-hmm. You go down, you make it, I'll come down, and I'll critique you. Nice. You take a photo, you smash it, and you put it back into the <laughs> machine, <laughs> and we melt it. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's really, it. that was kind of my start of really getting into kind of the more of the the, the hands-on and the, the and the technical side of mm-hmm. how to make chocolate and and that and then from you know from Paris I moved to London mm-hmm. um, started in a little place ironically it was a Chinese restaurant nice. <laughs> <laughs> French pastry chef uh, mostly French people that worked there. Mm-hmm, interesting. On the ground floor was a, a tea salon. Okay. Where we did all very fine little petit entremets and macaron and bonbons <laughs> and all different things and would work tirelessly, you know, putting these, putting them together and then yeah. putting them in the case and then we never sold anything. <laughs> <laughs> We sold a few pieces every day, but yeah. it was like it was such a money losing yeah. uh, <laughs> effort. Fortunately, we had the restaurant that was you know right busy all the time, and it kind of carried us. But <laughs> that was one of the best, like one of the best learning mm-hmm. experiences. And you know, I, I did some training. At, I did I I did a couple stages at Pierre May mm-hmm. and Sucre Cacao in Paris. Okay. When I was in school, basically, I never had it, you know, took a day off. Mm -hmm. You know, it was going into those places and learning. So you, I I learned a little bit of really that fine work. Right. Really, like, I would say, like, Michelin standard Mm -hmm. of pastry shops. But, like, Yawacha was day in, day out, every day. Right. The pressure, the, you know really having to having to do things and, and yeah being pushed and what kind of keeps you motivated in that regard too so obviously you have people pushing you every day but how you're like well 
my pieces I'm gonna put out aren't even gonna sell. I'm just gonna <laughs> pretend to eat them later tonight when we take them off the shelf. Yeah. Is it just kind of like at that point, just the passion of just doing the work and realizing I think it, this? Yeah, I think, you know, like, uh, yeah, watch it. And then our, our sister restaurant was is Hakkasan. Mm -hmm. And um, both Chinese restaurants. And yeah, that was the motivation. It was, it was because you're learning. And so mm -hmm. it really didn't matter. I mean, you know, it wasn't my money on the line. That okay, fair. I was, I was working for someone else and it was like, okay, well, we have to make it. Mm -hmm. But we're going to do the best that we can do. And that, you know, that was always the that motivation that you were working in one of the best places okay and if you weren't selling it was fine <laughs> <laughs> so walk us through kind of like high level just like the process to putting together some chocolate in general right obviously you're talking about how you wanted to make kind of the cool designs let me just walk us through the different steps of that to like day one you want to make some chocolate to like just presenting something that you would put through yeah i mean out, yeah. you know essentially you know behind me here mm -hmm that you can't see, but, <laughs> you know, I work with a, it's a, a Salmi um, machine that's built in Italy. Uh, it's a continuous tempering machine. Okay. So when I come in and, you know, most, most artisan chocolate makers, I think a lot of them are using, mm -hmm. smart ones are using a similar machine that I have. Okay. Uh, you know, you can, get, you can crank it out really. But basically what you wanted, you know, you melt it, and if I'm working in dark chocolate and I, I don't know Fahrenheit, so everything is in Celsius. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the translation is. But, you know, when you come in and, and um, the whole process of, of say, just getting a, a, a single tablet. Right. Is melting the chocolate to about 50 degrees Celsius, depending on the type of chocolate that you're using. Okay. Because all the different producers, there's different ranges and I could go on for hours about the actual production of that, but yeah, <laughs> um, but you melt it and then you need to bring it to a second stage of um, actually bring it so fifty degrees and then you bring it down to between twenty eight and twenty nine. Okay, and that and hardens then, it. The lower it, it, it's still liquid. Okay, but it'll become um, thicker. Okay, um. And then to work with it, to actually mold it, you need to bring it up to about 31 degrees. Okay. And what you're doing is you're, you're essentially what you do is you're crystallizing the cocoa fat. Okay. So, <clears throat> um, then it's ready to mold. Mm -hmm. And as if, if, if I were doing a showpiece, it's the same. Okay. And, you know, depending on what type of mold that you're putting in or a piece that you're making. Okay. It's basically, it's that same process. Okay. Interesting. So when you do the show pieces, how do you, do you make a mold of the show piece or do you kind of work with it kind of like clay or some other? You, you, yeah. Or, I mean, okay. you can, there's, there's a lot of different ways. It depends on what type of piece that you're making. Okay. In general, if you're doing an assembled, uh, assembled piece, you will either have molds mm -hmm. or you can make your own. Okay. And simply that, if you, if you have like, you know, you may have a base that it could be in a, like a tart ring okay. or uh, free free poured. Mm -hmm. I've done it uh, like on bubble wrap. Right. Um, and then the the actual like kind of the frame, the structure of mm -hmm. it, I use paperboard. Okay. So I'll cut paperboard and you kind of shape it and set it into a thin strip of chocolate. Interesting. And kind of 
yeah. make that free form, and then you pour the chocolate into that. Okay. And then typically you let it crystallize overnight. Okay, so I was kind of wondering like, how long it would take chocolate to go from kind of the liquid state to the hardened solid shape yeah. state, I guess. Uh, and does that only happen when you put it like in the refrigerator for overnight, or can that happen while you're working with yeah, it? Yeah, so like typically if I'm doing a showpiece, mm -hmm. I'll mold it and then I'll leave it out overnight. Okay. It will harden within, you know, 30 minutes to an hour. Okay, interesting. But you you want it to be fully crystallized throughout the chocolate. So depending on the thickness, mm -hmm. you know, if you have a piece of chocolate that's, you know, really thick, yeah, there's different ways that you can kind of speed up the crystallization. By, okay. You know, but essentially you want it to be at least overnight before you take it out of the mold mm -hmm. and then work with it. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. So walk us through from your time in London to opening in your own little chocolate shop here in yeah, Chicago. Wow, that's <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't just overnight. Like, you made the jump to Paris pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, so so obviously started at Yawacha and mm -hmm. Makassan, working there. Uh, I wasn't there very long, you know, three months. Typically, people that worked there, it was more like a, like a resume builder. Okay. And so, you know, we would go through a lot of staff. Oh, nice. And then I moved to... Um, the Royal Automobile Club, mm -hmm. uh, private private members club, automobiles, yeah. um, and I worked there for two and a half years. Okay. So started off as uh, chef de partie, working in the fine dining restaurant. Mm -hmm. So we kind of broke we broke up the pastry into two teams. Okay. One was the fine dining, really concentrate on that. Mm -hmm. um, and again, you know, Michelin standard restaurant. Probably, you know, we it's a private club, so we didn't get the, the star ratings. Right. But definitely, we're working at one, two Michelin stars. Oh, nice. Um, so very, very intense. And there, I was in charge of. On my station, I was in charge of pre desserts and petty fours. Okay. So I had free reign to do what I wanted, which mm -hmm. was brilliant. Nice. Because I could come up with ideas. Mm -hmm. Really started work, you know, doing a lot of chocolate bonbons. Okay. Different types of fillings, flavors. Fun. Um, it was great because you had the autonomy, mm -hmm. and you play with what you wanted to, and and develop things, and and then I was promoted to. We had a we had a a second clubhouse, like a country house. Okay. In. in um, in Epsom in, in Surrey, okay. which is southwest London. Two 18-hole golf courses, 22-room, B&B, basically. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I was I was promoted to the head pastry chef there. And again, completely autonomy. Do what you want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was great because it, it, it let me experiment. Mm -hmm. And if I failed, then you look back yeah and correct it or you know how did you get feedback from like if things were going well or not like if people were buying stuff off the menu or people actually giving you feedback like this was really good were you going out into the restaurant and asking people like, yeah how we would you? get from you know we would get it it was mostly members but yeah we would get feedback from them okay uh i would meet with the executive chef of the clubhouses mm -hmm. once a week okay and the executive chef of uh, in Epsom 
yeah. meet with him at least once a week and kind of explain what I want to do. Okay. And then they kind of would let me run with it. And I mean, they trusted me, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, some, some things failed. <laughs> As you're trying some, yourself, you know, right, yeah. but you know, yeah, some things failed, but I think most of the times they were successful, and mm-hmm. obviously the feedback from uh, Mr. Cork, who's the executive chef of okay. the clubs. I mean, he he always had my back, so mm-hmm. it was, hey, maybe maybe try this. Yeah. Um, but I think he always he always respected what I did and. Yeah, so that that's that's that, and then that was a great job. I left it. Mm-hmm. I left it for really kind of like growth, right? Because yeah, I could have stayed at the club. I could still be there now, right? But I wanted something else, and mm-hmm. I wanted to grow. I wanted to learn more about, really more about. That was kind of you know cooking, doing pastry, production restaurant mm-hmm. and catering and all that but I wanted to learn more of the business side okay because eventually I mean I knew that I wanted to have my own place whether it was bar cacao or mm-hmm. you know pastry shop or whatever it was I always wanted you know something of my own so I left there and I I worked at um, I was a pastry chef for Tate okay so Tate Museums Tate Modern we were based at Tate Modern mm-hmm and that was really learning the kind of the I always say the admin side right <laughs> and budgets and which is huge which is huge and <clears throat> I think that's where a lot of chefs fail mm-hmm. is they don't get they don't get that knowledge in school mm-hmm. and they don't get that knowledge they're expected to come in produce cook for service yeah and that's all they do mm-hmm. and there are exceptions to that right you know, but I think the great majority of chefs they don't learn that, and they don't have the management skills, and they don't have mm-hmm. communication skills. And you can be a great cook, but you're not a good chef. And I always say, chef, you know, is a boss. It's not. I'm a. I remember when I when I when my father and I we when we went to visit Paris, and I was taking a photo, and it was the it was in English. It was like the patisserie. It was a pastry and bread making union okay. or guild it was a guild, yeah, a guild yeah. of France <laughs> and I started taking a photo and these two women came running up through the courtyard asking me you know in French yeah. what are you doing what are you doing and I, and I, I said well I said to them I'm, I'm a chef yeah. and that's when I really and then they asked me chef of what <laughs> <laughs> I said oh right yeah I'm a I'm a pastry chef, mm-hmm. and then their eyes lit up, and they said, "Yeah, okay, you're fine." Yeah, but that's when I realized it's like that. There's the difference. It's like <laughs> you're a boss, or you're you know, yeah, a boss of a restaurant or mm-hmm. a kitchen or pastry, whatever right. it is, of a business. But you know, so you can be a great cook, but you're not necessarily mm-hmm. a chef. Makes sense. Yeah, even though you have a title. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, I was, I was at Tate for two, like, about two and a half years, mm-hmm. and then a friend of mine, uh, he kind of, you know, kind of the, the, again, it was like kind of the grass is greener thing, and, oh, yeah. and maybe moving up, I, I, I kind of wanted to get, 
you know, Tate, Tate was great, um, but it was kind of moving in more into, into that Michelin, the Michelin background again. Mm -hmm. So my friend had, at the time he had, he, he had just opened his third restaurant with his business partner. Two of them were Michelin starred restaurants. Okay. So I was the group pastry chef for them. Nice. Uh, and again, learning. Yeah. Learning again. And, uh, it's, it's always, for me, it was every, every step that I took, there was, you know, so we were was, taking from there, yeah. Yeah. It was ending up in a place that I, that I felt that I would be comfortable to mm -hmm. say, okay, now I can, now I can do it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I left there and then I went to, so one of the last, like, kind of full-time positions that I had was a group pastry chef for Cubit House. Okay. Which is, uh, at the time they had four gastropubs. Nice. I was in charge of, this was like really back to being at a desk <laughs> and going to the places, training my staff. Okay. And, um, that, I, that was a great job because we could go in and I was really similar to Tate where I had, a, I had a great team, mm -hmm. but now my team was between four restaurants right. and getting them more involved mm -hmm. of menu design and doing specials and saying to them, okay, come up with something. I'll be in on a Tuesday or whatever. Okay. And I want to taste what you're going to have for the weekend. Makes sense. And really building them as a team, mm -hmm. even though we were between yeah, all these different locations. Yeah. So it was, it was challenging. But it was great. And then I also, I was uh, the director of sustainability okay. for the group as well. So that's kind of all about what I do here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, that, that has become a very important thing for me. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in, at Cubit House, we were working with local farmers um, doing some projects with with fishermen mm -hmm. and day catches nice. and how how we could help these coastal communities kind of rebuild what they've lost mm -hmm. and that was that's amazing and oh, then, yeah. you know yeah and then I moved here <laughs> <laughs> and I was I was going to be here for one year and go back to back to the UK and open a pastry shop mm -hmm. I had a business partner that I was working with, um, but I met my chocolate producer partner mm -hmm. in the meantime okay. <laughs> here, and I, again, with the sustainability, it was everything that what they do is so far above what other chocolate producers are doing, sure, and growers and all that, and I just, I fell in love with what they do, mm -hmm. and you know, it kind of just feeds into that the sustainable uh, background and. And how are so they different in that regard on the sustainability aspects? So, through my partner, mm -hmm. my partner in particular, they work directly with all the growers. Okay. So from the cacao mm -hmm. to the sugar to all of our dairy farmers. Cool. So we don't. We source everything directly. Mm -hmm. I always say we because we're all kind of in it together. But yeah. 
um, we say for like as an example like the cacao mm-hmm. the farmers we don't buy beans okay. to produce the chocolate the farmers are actually my partner has collection centers mm-hmm. in every uh, different cacao growing regions okay. in Peru and Ecuador okay and um, so the farmers are actually delivering the fruit to the collection center interesting and then we do the fermentation and mm-hmm. the drying and um, then that shipped to Quito mm-hmm. where they mix the sugar and everything and produce the chocolate cool yeah so it's it's unique that we are able to reduce the supply chain mm-hmm. and therefore we, we have better traceability right accountability um, and and we can maintain that mm-hmm. we don't there's issues with other chocolate around the world that, you know, I avoid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've heard some horror stories that like people say, I'm like, are you serious? Like, that's just what regulation allows for. So anything beneath that. Yeah. And that's the thing is, you know, the, a lot of people, you know, the, they turn, they turn a blind eye or, uh, it's because the supply chain is so long that you, you do. You lose. You lose the accountability. Oh yeah. And so you can you can pass the blame to someone else. Mm-hmm. Whereas we can't do that. Right. And we wouldn't do that. It's we we have created these partnerships with everyone. Like mm-hmm. our our, you know, where we source our sugar as well. I mean, um, our dairy farmers so are grass fed cows, mm-hmm. hand milked. Nice. From one region in Ecuador. Okay. Yeah. And it's amazing when you go down there and you see what they do and you see like. You see happy people, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but in turn we can, you know, by sourcing things directly, they, the farmers, are getting more, mm-hmm. and it's helping them economically. It's helping them socially. Right. They can have the time to. It's enriching their lives. Right. And it's you know so every. You buy a chocolate bar for me, and it's it's not just helping me, but it's helping mm-hmm. people what three four thousand miles away. Yeah, and it's direct. It's a direct impact, mm-hmm. and it's that's important to me. That's huge. Yeah, it's it's massive. You know, it's I won't. You know, some places you look at human trafficking and slave labor and right. children working that are five six years old with a machete. That's not that's not the right way to do it. It's absolutely crazy. It's like that's yeah. why some chocolate is cheap and expensive, yeah. and there's a price that we pay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big. I mean, it's a big price that we pay, and I think it's. I, I don't want to. I don't want to say that we're like. Oh, how do you say? How do you say? Chocolate is. I mean. It shouldn't be the. It shouldn't be that way. It should mm-hmm. be the way that we do it, and and right. maybe maybe we can do even better, you know. But it's not, you know. I think we need to think about mm-hmm. where our food comes from, right? How it's produced. Uh, you know, we're all non-GMO, organic. Mm-hmm. Everything that I do, it's all natural. I don't use artificial flavors, anything like that. It makes so. a huge difference. For a long time, I didn't like 
worry about my diet in regards to those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And once I started watching it, I could see huge differences in the foods I eat. Yeah. I'm like one day within, like one day without. Like I can see a huge difference in my energy levels, like how I look and everything. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I'll go, you know, I'll go back to like, like when we worked with the fishermen. Mm-hmm. So we worked at, at Cupid House. We worked with um, a fishing village on the south coast mm-hmm. in Rye. And we worked with a, a group of fishermen in Cornwall. Mm-hmm. And I had never been, you know, being in the restaurant business and hotel and all that, it used to, you know, it was always, you phone up, you say, I need this much salmon. Right. And then the next day you get the salmon. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not thinking about what's involved in... in yeah. What I learned was that's do we were doing it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. When we would have day catch boats go out, mm-hmm. the fishermen would, you know, they'd come back with their catch at five in the morning. They'd phone us at the restaurant yeah. and say, "This is what we have." They were dictating our menu, right? And that's the right way round, mm-hmm. and that's how that's where it directly impacts the fishermen mm-hmm. because now they haven't they're not wasting anything. Um, so I think that was doing things the right way around that we you know we learned from that was we could change our menus um, much easier than they could change like what they were catching right and it impacted them more so like as an example like in Rye when we when we first started working in partner with them it was um this fishing village went from its heyday in the 60s and the 70s. Okay. They had something like 50, 60 boats going out every day. Interesting. In 2011, they had three. Mm-hmm. So it decimated the village. Yeah. You know, it, was, it became a place that no one would go to. Mm-hmm. And people didn't want to be fishermen, so they were going into IT or moving to London or, right. you know. But by changing kind of the way that we looked at things and mm-hmm. how we caught, right. it was, it went, I was reading something in, in, uh, in The Guardian a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. Now Rye is mentioned as a place to visit. Interesting. Because they've been, you know, they have the money now that they can, you know, they painted their houses, they mm-hmm. plant flowers and, yeah. you know, it's, it's turned the village around and it wasn't just, it was... Not because of me or, right. or us or what we were doing. It was all of us together mm-hmm. turning this community around. Right. And looking at a business model a different way. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's, that's what sustainability is about. It's, it's you know, I, it's, it's the long game. Yeah. And it's, it does take time. Mm-hmm. But it's much better for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about going out and having your business make money at the expense of someone else. Right. It's about community and building something together. It's just so much more sustainable in general, too. That's how I like to do business with people, or just in general interactions. Is there's not a win or lose. It's how both partnerships can right. win. And people like I don't understand people don't see that in some instances. It's like you're gonna get burned at some point. Why is it always be a competition? Why can't just everyone be better off? Exactly. Like a rising tide lifts all ships kind it's, of situation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that, that's exactly what, you know. It was the same with our fruit and veg growers and mm-hmm. everyone that we worked with. Yeah. And when when I met my chocolate partner, producer partner, mm-hmm. 
to see that they were doing that, I, you know, I was going to use uh, a, a different chocolate mm-hmm. who is very sustainable in what they do and very responsible. Right. But Republica del Cacao was mm-hmm. just like on that next level. Right. And it fit more what I want to do as what I do. Because, I mean, you can't grow cacao here. <laughs> if I could, I, well, it wouldn't be sustainable anyway. <laughs> but, you know, we are, I always say, you know, it, it starts locally there in <laughs> South America and it's produced locally here. Right. So now we're sustainable on, on both ends. Nice. With all this uh, talk about chocolate, etc., where can people find some of your chocolate here in town? Uh, so, I am at Randolph Street Market every month. Okay. I've been doing that over a year now. It's always, it's the last weekend of the month. Mm-hmm. Um, online at barcacaochocolat.com. Okay. That's probably the easiest you can get. You know, I have everything on there. Perfect. I do, you know, my tablets and other items and seasonal things. Mm-hmm. Like I'm getting ready for Easter right now, so right. I'm, I'm producing eggs and little goodies that are going to go inside the egg. Perfect. So you smash it open when you, <laughs> on Easter Sunday, you smash it open and, and you know, you have a good time. Um, I met Marche and Glen Ellen. Okay. Kramer Foods in Hinsdale. Uh, Salty Fig in Western Springs. Awesome. And I don't want to forget anyone, but uh, <laughs> CXT Roasting in Peoria. Mm-hmm. And a couple other, uh, other places. Awesome. And I apologize if people are listening that I didn't name you. <laughs> well, this is always growing. We'll get it out. <laughs> awesome. So and we're always and we're always growing. So you know we we specialize, um, you know, really with like small specialty food shops, mm-hmm. boutique wine shops, coffee roasters. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, Matthew, thanks for the show. We appreciate it. Thank you. This was a really fun interview for me. We actually did it in his kitchen, so I got to see where the chocolate was made and all the machines and everything. It was absolutely phenomenal. Great conversation for sure. Definitely looking forward to having him on for our second episode, hopefully, chatting more about sustainability, where he gets his resources from to make the chocolate from Barcacao Chocolate. This episode is sponsored by our friends over at Steakhall. StakeHall is a social wagering app for the next generation. With StakeHall, you can easily challenge your friends to games of skill or even be a third-party judge between mutual friends. Stake your hard-earned cash, a night out in the town, or even just your dignity. They strive to be the most entertaining and most interactive social wagering platform on the market. StakeHall is an app that you download on the App Store. Uh, right now it's on iOS only, soon to be coming into Android, where you can challenge your friends to some fun games. I've challenged some friends to a game of ping pong. I've challenged some game friends to a round of hot wing eating contests. Right now I'm in the challenge of Movember, things of that nature. Absolutely incredible. Ever have that friend that takes a bet with you and then at the end of the word doesn't want to pay up and says, bro, we never shook hands? No longer a problem with StakeHall. You can put it up on social media, share it with your friends, get a third-party judge, problem solved. Check them out at stakehall.io. That's S-T-A-K-E-H-A-U-L dot I-O. Or go to the iOS and iOS store and download them. Stakehall. Check it out now. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Pod Directory, or SoundCloud. 
That way, you'll get our latest episodes sent right to your device when they come out every week. For reference, those are all linked up right in the show notes. While you're in there, feel free to leave us a review. If you do, all I can say is two words. Endless gratitude. Writing reviews helps us understand how we can improve the podcast as we all continue along this fun adventure in fashion, fitness, and food. Thank you.